Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right. I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast. It's a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Ryan Lister. Ryan Lister is professor of theology at Western Seminary. He's the director of doctrine and discipleship for Humble Beast. He is co-creator of the Canvas Conference, and he's the associate pastor at Trinity Church of Portland. Dr. Lister has written books like Emblems of the Infinite King, Images and Idols, and the presence of God, his dissertation turned into a wonderful resource. It's this topic that Dr. Lister is talking about now in this workshop from our 2021 conference on connecting a theology of God's presence to our experience of corporate worship. So let me begin with a proposal. Worship centers on the presence of God. Now, I think this is something that the church just assumes. It's something that the church lives with implicitly. I mean, just listen to the way our worship leaders, ministers, and teachers pray. And and when we do, we begin to see and we begin to hear, maybe even in ourselves, invoke God to do things like fill this sanctuary with your presence. Or to, Lord, please draw near. Or, Or we say things like, Lord, be with us now. Now, now this language of God's presence slips in and out of our worship talk because I think we all know implicitly that our worship, in fact, does center on the presence of God. Today, what I want to do is try to help us think about how to make that implicit idea explicit. And I want to do this by doing exactly what this conference is all about, by connecting our theology and our doxology or more specifically, connecting a theology of God's presence to our worship experience. Because worship and presence, God's presence, are inseparable. And here's why. God's presence is central to worship because God's presence is central to God's story. The very story we meet and read about in in Scripture. And what is Scripture after ultimately? That we know God and... We worship him accordingly. So if if we understand worship as our engagement with God, as David Peterson puts it, we begin to see that worship is very much about engaging or, or experiencing God where he has revealed himself, namely in and through his own story, which means then that worship is about living into the story of Scripture, which is the story, as as I'll try to show, the story of God's presence. So, worship then has the same objective as God's word. God is using both to help us know and experience him as the God who draws near. In other words, God's story shows us who God is and why he's present, which then calls us to worship him for his drawing near. As the author of Hebrews puts it, God's word shows us how he has made a way for us to draw near to him once again. 
But he doesn't stop there. Now, the author of Hebrews then makes a call to worship. He calls us to draw near to him, which I, I, I think, and I think this is a biblical statement, this is a ver- the very heart of biblical worship. Now, all of this hinges, all this proposal hinges on whether or not the presence of God is actually central to the story of Scripture which I think it is, and even in the briefest overview, we can't get around just how important God's presence is to God's own story. Now, all of this hinges on whether or not the presence of God is actually central to the story of Scripture, which I think it is. And even in the briefest overview, we can't get around just how important God's presence is to God's story and thereby to our worship. So just think about how Scripture starts. It begins with God's presence. He is present to create a world to know and to be known by. At the center of this creation is man and woman. These these creatures who he has made to know him and to be known by him in a very special way. That's because God made man and woman to enjoy his presence. Or as Genesis 3.8 puts it, God made the first couple to walk in his presence in the garden in the cool of the day. But God not only made us to enjoy his presence, he made us to help share his presence with the rest of creation. See, God plants humanity in Eden, this this special garden sanctuary of where God drew near. He plants humanity in Eden to extend the borders of his presence to the ends of the earth. That's why God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, to rule and subdue the earth. See, God isn't just saying, hey, have a lot of kids and open a landscaping company. No, God is giving them a cosmically charged purpose. Adam and Eve are to build a people and a place for the experience, or what we could say, the worship of God's presence. And as Adam's family grows, so too does the realm of his ruling and subduing. Through their obedience, and Eden's borders were to naturally extend to the entire world and to bring with it the very location, the very worship of God's presence. So we see that God's presence defines the beginning of Scripture, of God's story. It also is defining our humanity. See, God creates us to be a people of his presence and to make the world a place for his presence and the place where he is worshipped. But something went horribly wrong, didn't it? See, this is by no means our experience. So where do things break down in God's story? Well, again, like we saw in the beginning, things are still centering on God's presence. As we see in the first couple, and we even feel in our own hearts today, we've exchanged the truth of God's story for the serpent's lie. We've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of our own egos. We've exchanged, along with Adam, the divine mission to spread the good life of God's presence for the godless mission to spread sin and death everywhere we go. Now, as Genesis 3 shows us, sin has a multitude of consequences. But at the core of it all, 
beyond the loss of identity, the agony of childbirth, the pain of working this ground is this. God removes his people from the place of his presence. See, we, along with Adam, are cast out of Eden. We are exiled from the presence of God. We are left standing out in the cold, cut off from the very purpose of our existence, no longer worshiping God, but turning in on ourselves, trying to make a name in our pride in the darkest places east of Eden. But in his grace, God doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't just leave us in our problem, does he? No, at the heart of God's story is God's unexpected solution. And God's presence is at the center of that solution. You see, even while God rightly brings judgment to the first couple, he simultaneously offers indescribable hope. In Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that one of her descendants was coming to deal in full with the treachery of the serpent and with the pollution of Adam's sin. And as the New Testament shows us, this promised one is Jesus, who through his perfect life and his perfect death takes our punishment on the cross and through his resurrection crushes the head of the serpent once and for all. And how does Jesus do this? By being who he is by being the very presence of God incarnate. You see, Jesus, as Matthew tells us, is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, who takes on flesh to dwell among us. And why does God become present in Christ? To provide a way for sinners like you and me to worship God in his presence once again. You see, this is all over the New Testament. God is becoming present in Christ so that we may once again draw near to God. Because who Jesus is and what he has done, we can now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive God's mercy and to worship him. That's the beginning of the story. That's the middle of the story. But how does this story end? Well, in many ways, it ends where it began, but in a better place. For those who follow Emmanuel, follow him into a new and better Eden, this garden that at the end of God's story has become a city. And that city, at the end of all things, has become a cosmic temple that fills all the earth with his presence. That is because in this new heavens and new earth, where all of creation is going, God himself is present with his people. He is seated on his throne, declaring the goal of his story, the goal of worship when he announces, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, God's story has always been about his presence. The point of God's story, the point of our salvation, the point of our worship, the point of everything isn't just to have a new creation. The point is to transform all of creation into the place of God's presence and to fill it 
with a people who will worship God for the glory of his presence. So here, even the briefest review, we see that God's story is in many ways the story of God's becoming present to make a way back into his presence. So if God's story centers on this, and if worship is about living and living into uh, or rejoicing in God's story, then that means our worship has everything to do with God's presence. Therefore, we should let this biblical emphasis transform our contemporary vision of worship. And I think it can, and I think it should in many ways. Now, there are a lot of ways for us to see this, to be sure. But let me just give you a few implications that should get us thinking and hopefully get us rejoicing. First, God's presence transforms worship by confronting us with the question, what story are we actually living in? You see, worship is the given of the human experience. What we worship is the variable. And every story has a call to worship. Today, especially in the West, we've all hitched our worship to whatever story or whatever narrative we've bought into. And the world's narratives are legion. They're political, sexual, racial, social, philosophical, economic. You name it, they're all there. But the one constant in all of them is that they all promise us the world. And their promise always falls short. But in contrast, here is the beauty of Christian worship. It centers on God's better story of God's better presence. What it does is it offers us worship that ultimately rests not in ourselves or in the world's failing systems, but on the good and loving God who has already drawn near. Which is why our worship in our churches and in our lives should always be about bringing God's story to bear on one another's lives. You see, in the wake of all these counterfeit stories that we're drowning in, true biblical worship is a lifeline. It helps us renew and reinforce the divine story arc of our lives. It offers us hope and holds up reminders of what it means to live into the promise of God's presence. And it shows us what all other narratives are missing by showing us who we are and how our story fits into God's better story. Next, and connected to that, God's presence transforms worship by making God bigger than we could ever imagine and making God better than anything the world could ever offer. As we've seen, worship is competitive. We're living in a may-the-best-story-win kind of world, which is why doxology needs deep, God-oriented theology that runs through the beauty of God's presence. Worship is where God's story, where his theology, if you will, sings literally and figuratively. When we introduce God's presence into our worship, we are saying what no other narrative this world offers can actually say. When we build our worship on God's presence, we proclaim that a transcendent God in his incomparable love has become imminent to bring rebels like you and me back to him. When we do, we worship the holy other God who drew near in his son that we might draw near to him to know and experience his promises. 
Now, I can keep going, but and, and let's be honest, I, I want to. But, but finally, God's presence also transforms the goal of all of life, making all of life worship. See, doxology turns out to be much more than just one moment in a worship service on one Sunday morning. For the Christian, doxology is a way of life. Worship reshapes everything by bringing the future promises of God's story into our lives right now. So when done well, Christian worship makes our lives teleological. Worship becomes goal-oriented. It's focused on the life to come and bringing those experiences of that future good life to bear on our lives today. Worship is then about the right now experience of God's future promise because Christ has left us with the down payment of his spirit. See, God's spirit indwells believers to work out what it means to worship him and to reshape our hopes and dreams around the good life that is prepared for us in this better Eden to come. And the Spirit brings that future good life to us now through worship. See, when we live lives of worship, we live into God's story. We center our lives on the past work of God's presence in Christ, the current work of God's presence in the Spirit, and the future work of living in God's presence in the new creation. So for today, the Spirit uses worship to let the rays of all that future, all the new heavens and new earth, break into the minutia of our day-to-day lives. In worship, God's future promises become our right now hopes. In worship, the Spirit begins to realign the goal of our lives and the goal of our worship into God's very purposes, remaking us back into a people who are enchanted by the glorious experience of his presence being made ready to enter into the perfect place of his perfect presence. And through the Spirit's work, we know this to a degree even now, as we center our lives and our worship on the presence of God. That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com, and click podcast. We are happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you are on our website, you can find information concerning other free worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. That's what we've got for you this time on the Doxology and Theology Podcast. Our show is produced by the uber-competent Juan Leon, engineered by Caleb Sherwood. And the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Listen to that quintuple swing. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you, friends, the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you. <laughs>